in Luke 23, looking at verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And I'll conclude our reading this morning. The title of our message today, drawn from that verse, is Divine Forgiveness. Divine Forgiveness. Even in the last song that we sung, um, the author, Sister Fanny Crosby, told us that the story of Jesus is what's important. And throughout the song, it told us of different aspects of his life that were important. That song aptly describes what the purpose of a church is. And that is to tell the world about Jesus. Now Jesus is credited for a lot of things that he's not guilty of today. He is portrayed in ways that are not accurate. And if you're someone here that is not acquainted with Jesus... I think this verse, this snapshot verse, is a wonderful portrayal of who he is if you don't know him. In other words, this encompasses this one verse, this one phrase, encompasses so much about the character of Jesus Christ. And it demonstrates before us why that we worship Him and why He is so different than any man in the history of the world. It is accurately said that everything that we do here rides upon one man. Everything about the Christian religion rides upon the validity, the dependability of just one man. And his name is Jesus Christ. And there have been four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who have been made responsible during their lifetime as eyewitnesses of his majesty and of his goodness, of his life. The Bible teaches us that he dwelt among us. And the author, John, that recorded, said, And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so these men watched his life. They saw the things that he did and by God's inspiration, accurately wrote down for us his life. How he lived and how he died. How he rose again. This verse that we read to you today is the first words of Jesus on the cross. And so today we're going to look at these first words of Jesus upon the cross and attempt to portray before you through these words the character of Jesus and why He is so wonderful. The context of this verse is Important to note because it only magnifies, if we just talked about these words, it would be enough to display before us His excellence. But 
when we understand that this verse is couched into a larger context, then all it does is it causes these words, the aroma, the, the, the sight of these words, to blossom before our very eyes in a way that is astounding. Jesus, during his life, said things that no man had ever said. There are doctrines that he lays out during his earthly life that you will find nowhere else preceding the life of Jesus Christ. But it is not only his words that are profound. For we might look to other men down through history and read philosophies of Aristotle or Cicero or the Greeks that were known for their philosophies and we can hear their words and be awed by the wisdom in their political philosophy and their analysis of human nature and their uh, observations of how the world functions. But what exalts Jesus Christ is not only what he said, but the manner and context in which he says the things that he does. And so what brings this Beautiful phrase. So much more of its power and of its emphasis is to understand when Jesus is saying this. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus had a purpose. And he had been up to this point faithful to his purpose. He came in the world to seek and to save those who are lost. And in order to accomplish that, it was required of him to live a perfect life. Why? Well, he was going to be our sacrifice. Because you and I have failed and failed terribly to upkeep the law of God. And that by our works, we cannot earn our way to heaven. By our good deeds, it's It's portrayed today as though that if you can just live a good life and cross your fingers when you get to heaven, hopefully God will just allow you to be in. And yet the scriptures are clear that it is not by works of righteousness which we have done that will cause us to enter into heaven. But there had to be a perfect life lived and the credit of that perfect life given to you and I. And that yoke, that responsibility, responsibility fell upon the man, Jesus. He was born of a virgin, which means he did not have the seed of sin in him. From the moment of his birth until these agonizing moments here, Jesus, every thought, every word, every deed, he obeyed precisely God's will. Now, if you're like me, that's an that's a incredible thing to consider for a few moments. Because if you're like me, there are times in my life that I feel as though my life is mine to determine what I want to do. So, for example, we come to a place like this, or we go to a place of employment, or we have certain gatherings and functions that we attend, and we know that there is a certain standard that is imposed upon us that we must live in accordance to. And so when we come into the house of God, these unspoken do's, 
We've got to sit here and we've got to sit up and we've got to listen and we've got to participate and we've got to go through all these things. And you go to work and you know that there's a standard of conduct, that there's an assignment that you've been given and that you're supposed to uphold all of these various things that have been made your responsibility to accomplish. But when you set all of those things aside and you go home and you feel as though now this is my domain, now I can do as I choose, I want you to recognize that every moment of Jesus' life, he put under subjection to the will of God. There was not a moment where he said, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do now. There were many days where he was pressed beyond measure and he was so fatigued, he was so tired that even in the midst of a storm, in the belly of a ship, through his exhaustion, he was sleeping despite no doubt the ship being tossed to and fro. Jesus was pressed more than any other man and yet he executed perfectly the instructions daily and momentarily what God gave him to do. And... There were times when people adored him. And he would come into a place as he did into Jerusalem that day. And and they bowed and they laid out their clothing and they put out palm leaves. And certainly it would seem easier to continue in this path of obedience when you're being heralded to do so. When people are exalting you and saying, you're doing such a great job, and perhaps it's human nature even in us, when people can begin to praise us for for performing certain actions that we would easily continue to walk down that path. And yet, as Jesus is coming to the end, and it has been revealed to him, and he has revealed to his followers and to the world, this is it. I am going to come into Jerusalem and people will scorn and reject me and hate me. Jesus' face is still set towards being obedient even in this time of crisis. Not only has he set his heart on being obedient to God's will, but he's also seeking out the welfare of sinners. It's It's amazing here that just 24 hours earlier, Jesus has, not even that, has met with his disciples and they have observed the Passover feast. What we now know as the Lord's Supper, what had become now the Lord's Supper, he established that. And he tells us he's not going to eat of the fruit of the vine until he comes into the kingdom of God. So we know he's not eaten for some time. We further know that he has gone into the garden of Gethsemane. And he went out to this garden and he began to pray. And he was in turmoil and he was in deep sorrow. In so much that his sweat became drops of blood because of the stress and the burden that was pressing down upon his spirit. He had gathered his faithful few followers those 12 men whom he had called out and he had asked them to pray for him as he entered these moments of deep sorrow only to find as he returned over and over them sleeping on him. More concerned about their own rest 
than our Savior's welfare. And yet he prays even the more earnestly. Again, acknowledging his will, but surrendering it to God the Father's will for our welfare. And then in the middle of the night, that band of people comes, that band of Roman soldiers, and for 30 pieces of silver, one of his closest followers, Judas Iscariot, betrays him with a kiss, identifying the man to those soldiers. It's estimated, we don't know how many soldiers were there, but some say it was up to 500 came out to meet him. We don't know that. We know it was a lot. They come out and they arrest him. And thus begins the maltreatment of Jesus. They beat him. They mock him. They ridicule. One of his closest friends who had just pledged his eternal allegiance to him, forsakes him. Forsakes him not only once, not only twice, but three times forsakes him. False witnesses are brought up before the stand, and their stories contradict one another. It's a sham, the trial is. And from the testimonies that these these men leave behind, you can hear the conflict and all of the things that are being spoken to where you can tell it's a sham. And everyone knows that it's a sham. Everyone recognizes that these coming forth to testify have an ulterior motive. And yet Jesus does not plead his own case does not seek to be released from speaking the truth despite having wisdom with no depth, but continues towards his march to Calvary's hill. They hand him over to the Roman soldiers. These soldiers are known to be brutal. They're masters of torture. And the whole world knows it. And they use that fear to control those whom they govern. That's that's why they crucified thousands upon tens of thousands of people along the highways throughout the Roman Empire. It was a way, a controlling tool that they would express to the world. If you transgress... If you seek our downfall, that will be your fate. Conform, or not only die, but be tortured. These Roman soldiers were experts in death. And we can read the narrative of Jesus' crucifixion from his trial to the time that he's handed over to the Roman uh, centurions to the time that he's on the cross, and we can see a case study in how excellent they are at torturing someone through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And they whip him. But not in a normal way. They add at the end of those whips sharp objects that it might rip the flesh from his bones. 
And they force him to carry the cross. Each step, you know, I used to run cross country and when I wasn't as in good a shape as I ought to have been, as I got to the end of the race, my feet got heavier. My arms got heavier. My breath became more labored. It wasn't like it was when I began taking those steps. Those steps when I began were easy. But as I edged closer and closer to the finish line, suddenly I could feel my body pulsating. I could feel my pulse in my head. And here Jesus is forced by these wicked men, after having been tortured, to step by step by step, inch closer and closer to the location of his eventual death. And so much that his body couldn't take it. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. And so they compelled a man, it tells us just earlier in the scripture that we read to you, they compelled a man, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was the place where he lived or where he's from, and his name was Simon. And he helped Jesus to carry the cross till this destination place. I don't know what was more torturous. Up to this point, here's what I do know. That though many others had been crucified, no man yet in history and no man since had faced what Jesus had faced on the inside. Because the Bible tells us this in the prophecies of Isaiah, that the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So I want you to consider for just a moment the most guilt that you have ever felt in your life. Some of you, no doubt, have committed sins, either in public or in private. And you have felt in moments where your conscience began to speak to you or the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within you began to crush you. And some people are so weighed down with the guilt of their own sin, that they're compelled to take their own life because they imagine, I cannot bear the weight of this feeling of guilt that is crushing me. And yet the Bible teaches us that all of the sins of the world, every man, woman, and child who has felt a weight that has almost seemed unbearable, that has caused them to the most extreme actions one can imagine, at that moment, I believe in Gethsemane, Jesus had the weight of all of those things placed upon him. And he is being crushed and his spirit is being poured out. And then, to add to the matter, God the Father forsakes him. Oh, we Christian friend are blessed in a way that is beyond our imaginations. For we have the promises of his word. That no matter what lies before us, he promises, 
I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. And so what consolation that lies in this moment, in consideration of the future, what consolation and encouragement we find. And yet Jesus was in the very opposite, because as he marched through this life, as Brother Harvey has mentioned multiple times this week, with the Spirit of God with him, uh, with no measure, and what he had to look forward to was the removal of God's presence. Whereas what we have to look forward is the continual presence of God, but marching as Jesus did through those 33 years of life. Jesus knows at the end of this, here's what awaits me. I'll be forsaken. And yet our is the very opposite. We know that even in death, there in the valley of the shadow of death is a psalmist in the 23rd Psalm promises us he'll be with us. Jesus is being crushed in his spirit. The Bible tells us that it was not, it says in in Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You see, what had taken place, as we've mentioned a couple weeks ago, is the great exchange. God took the weight of our sins and placed it upon his son Jesus. And because of our sins, God the Father bruised him. He crushed him because of us. And Jesus here is experiencing the weight of judgment and punishment because of what we have done. And it pleased the Lord to do this. It pleased in in so much that it spared us the pain that would await those who did not trust in Christ. Jesus gets up Calvary's hill. I don't know if you've ever done this or not. I have. Taken a big nail. Pressed him into your wrist. I remember one day as I was doing that, I just picked up a hammer. I wasn't going to do anything. But at that moment, I got scared. At just the thought of that being a reality. I mean, imagine these four men hovering over you who have carried up to this point the most terrible torture that you could imagine. You're parched. It's hot. You're half naked. Blood is streaming down your body. They have insulted you by placing upon your head a crown of thorns as they've mocked you. And then, to just add to the torture, they pick up a big old nail. And imagine the man that sticks it right there in your wrist. Imagine the moments before as you see those men picking up the hammer the utter terror that must flood your mind. You know, when you get a shot, it's just one pinch. And once that initial pinch is over, 
Usually it's, it's done. But they had to nail him to the cross. And imagine between every swing of the hammer, what would flash through your whole body, the agonizing pain. And then just one arm is up. Hey, grab your other arm. You know when you're in pain, what's your gut reaction to do? Isn't it to flinch? Is it to protect yourself? And yet you can't. Because your arm is nailed to a cross. And they take the other one and they do the same. They pound it into you. He's not trying to run. He's not trying to hide. This did not come upon him unexpectedly. He volunteered. They put his feet together, presumably. Perhaps not. And there through his ankle joints, they nail his feet to the cross. It would seem as though that was enough, wouldn't it? And yet, I presume that that was the least painful of that experience upon the cross. Because what was about to happen to his body? There are no words. You see, there on the cross as he's lying, his weight is being borne by the ground or by that piece of wood. But not for very long. Because as they raise that cross, there the more those very joints which have been pierced, the very nerves that are the most sensitive, begin to bear more and more of the weight of his body. Until he is completely erect. And not only completely erect, but leaning forward uncontrollably. See, I can't even do it. My toes aren't strong enough. When I begin to lean forward, my foot has to catch myself. But he couldn't. So it's those joints where his nails have been pressed in that are holding him up. And it it seems as though in the text that we read, that as these things are happening, when we look in the the previous verse and it is telling us about his being crucified, and then it says, then said Jesus. So in the midst of all of this going on, let me ask you, in the midst of all this going on, if that's you, what is upon your mind in these moments? What is tremendous about what Jesus says in 34, in verse 34 that we read to you, is in part what he doesn't say. 
That's part of what is so amazing that the first thing that Jesus, that comes forth from his lips, are not, Father, I cannot bear this pain. It's not, angels, remove me from this cross. You know, you often hear even good Christian people, you ever, you're probably, I would hope, someone who doesn't use vulgar language. You ever hurt yourself? Outslip something you shouldn't? I think we've all done that, haven't we? I guess it's human nature. You're in pain. And suddenly our depraved human nature is exposed and those moral inhibitions that have been set up are no longer there. And there's somewhat of a mental justification that, you know, I was in pain. Thus, my sin doesn't count because I was hurting. Jesus did not give to that temptation. He didn't sin in his moment of deepest pain. Notice also what he doesn't do. He doesn't think of himself. He doesn't cry out in agony for help. He doesn't say, take me down. He doesn't look at the crowd of people and justifiably say, look at what I'm doing for you. He doesn't do any of those things. And in this sense, does this not demonstrate before our very eyes how different Jesus is than anybody we could ever know? That in the moments of most extreme agony, he thinks of someone else. And yet, that's not even what causes us to marvel. It even gets better than that. You see, when Jesus was upon the mountain there in Matthew chapter 5, verses or chapter 5 through 7, he's speaking to this crowd of people, his followers. Probably the most famous sermon that's ever been spoken, or at least written, and that is the great Sermon on the Mount. And contained in that beautiful sermon of profound teaching is this one phrase that all of us could shake our heads and say, yes, that's true, and it's good, and we ought to do that, and that's, Love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you. And we might get up behind the pulpit and you might in your home as you're teaching your children and you might on the way home from here speak about this abstract concept and how wonderful of a principle that it is. And yet when we find ourselves in the crucible of suffering, when we see that the Anger and the personal resentment of others is directed towards us. Suddenly those principles, as good sounding as they are, don't naturally come to our lips. I thought of the Psalms. You know, even in the Psalms, David at times, when he's being persecuted, when he's being pursued, he doesn't say, Lord bless those that seek after me to kill me. Now listen to what he says. Fight against them that fight against me. Let the angel of the Lord chase them. 
Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord persecute them. Let destruction come upon him at unawares and let his net that he had hid catch himself into the very destruction let him fall. Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together that rejoice at mine hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor and magnify themselves against me. Even this good Holy man, this man that was considered a friend of God, a man that was a, a, a man after God's own heart, even when he was in the midst of being pursued by his enemies, prays that God will somehow have vengeance against those. And I'm not saying necessarily that is an unjust thing, but it is not as holy as what Jesus utters here. You see, Jesus is able in these moments of inexpressible suffering to pray. Not for himself. Not just later on, you know, there are seven things that Jesus says on the cross. I encourage you, if you never have, to look at all seven things that Jesus spoke upon the cross. He doesn't, you know, later on, he speaks of his mother. He makes sure that she's well cared for. After his decease. He speaks to God the Father. Bemoaning his situation. He speaks to the thief on the cross. Thinking of that man. Again. Thinking of others. Constantly. But these first words of Jesus display. Again. What makes him so different. I've known of men and women who have sat on their bedside. Excuse me their deathbed. Prematurely, it seems as though they're in their 40s. They have children. We had a visitor here this week that spoke of that. He was somewhere around 40 years old, had four children all under the age of 12. I've spoken to him before, and he told me, you know, he had lined everything up for his family past his decease. To be financially cared for, to be emotionally cared for, to be, he lined everything out. The first words of Jesus are about those who killed him. Isn't, I mean, does that not leave you as in awe as it does me? Like, how could you think that way? See, don't, don't you realize today anybody who has doubted Jesus and whether he is this wonderful man as, he, as we, we say that he's, doesn't, doesn't this alone testify to you I don't even know in the, in, in the creativity of a man's mind if you could create someone this amazing. But notice the manner in which he intercedes. So it's, it's remarkable enough that he is calling out for others and not for himself. It's additionally remarkable that he's calling out on behalf of those who are responsible for his death. But then adding that even more so, listen to the endearing way that he intercedes on their behalf. If you were to try and convince someone to intercede, would you not use a tone and a language that is most receptive, most heart-bending to them? And as Jesus begins to intercede for these wicked men who have taunted and, and killed him, the first words out of his mouth are, Father, words that suggest a deep, the deepest relationship 
that he had. He's crying out like a son saying, Dad, this is a request I am making on a son's behalf. I'm not just a righteous man. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just the son of God. I'm your only begotten son. And if you were going to plead for help in moments of need, would you not appeal with the most gentle, loving way, appeal you can make? And would it not begin with Father? And yet, this appeal is not father help me it's father forgive them again do both words not have inexhaustible depth let's start with them who is them well those who put him there who's that well, let's just for just a moment go through the list. What about those soldiers that came out to the garden to get him? What about his friends who forsook him? What about the men, the man that betrayed him? What about that, that man, Pilate, who had the legal power given to him by God? To release him and yet chose not to. What about those who called out for Barabbas to be released? So that Jesus might be crucified. What about those who cried out whenever Barabbas was released? What are we to do with this man? And they cried out, crucify him. Torture him. Murder him. What about those compliant soldiers who mockingly made a sign entitled King of the Jews, who pressed down that thorn-laden crown upon him. What about as he's being lifted up from the cross? This is just my opinion. I think, this is just my opinion, I think given the context, and you go back and read it for yourself, that either Jesus is on the process of being lifted up, or he has just got lifted up, When he cries this out. So what about those men. Who are literally the instruments. Lifting him up. I don't know this. I've studied this some. And I've heard people who know a lot more about this than I do. That you know we have this image of the crucifixion. That a cross was some thing. Where he hung 10 or 15 feet high. And so all these people are looking up really high. But from what I've come to learn. And again you can can study this on your own. That. That's not how a cross was done. That actually a cross was just above eye level. So just think of it as like this. And so these people who are walking by are not walking by seeing him at some great height. But they're able almost to look at him eye to eye. And so Jesus is getting lifted up here. And part of the torture is knowing if I could just stand right there, I could find relief. And yet I can't. So when he says them, is he talking about those men who just crucified him that were standing right there in front of him? 
I think he's talking about all of them. And I think he's talking about one more group of people. And that is all of us. And the reason is because had it not been for our sin, he would not be there. You see, they were, very, they were just the instruments that carried out the judgment deserved upon us. Are those Roman soldiers, are those Jews any more guilty than you and I are? I say no. I say you and I stand in just condemnation to those men, for it was our sins that were placed upon him. And his soul was made an offering for sin. That's why he's there. And he's being lifted up and he begins to talk about us. He's experiencing this inner turmoil. He's experiencing this outer torture. And he's thinking on us. And he doesn't say, God, curse those people. He doesn't say, God, show those people your vengeance. No, he cries out. The single most loving thing that he could have cried out in that moment, and that is, Father, forgive them. Tell me today, who thinks like that but the Son of God? Who is so righteous to think that way and to intercede on behalf of those who are most guilty? And yet, Jesus does. And then, he continues in this intercessory prayer, this short but potent and powerful prayer to give a reason why God should forgive them. For or because they don't know what they're doing. Is that not the most persuasive argument one could make in that moment? Don't hold, you know, when my children get in trouble, there are times where they do something they shouldn't, but I come to know or I come to learn they didn't know they shouldn't. And so you don't want the most urgent request that they'll make. Dad, I didn't know. I wasn't aware. I'm sorry that I did that. And generally, if I believe them, that stays the punishment. And so Jesus is praying to his father. He's looking at this crowd of people that are tormenting him, that have cried out for his crucifixion, that their sins have literally nailed him to the cross. Now know this. He is praying this all the while separated from the one whom he is praying to. So God has turned his back on him. God has allowed him and placed upon him our iniquities. God has bruised him due to our sins. God has separated himself from him because sometime later he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this prayer is being uttered in a state when God has turned his back and yet Jesus still persists to intercede. He says they don't know what they do. 
Again, I don't, I don't know what he... I think he meant a lot of things by that. Did those Roman soldiers know exactly who they were doing that to? I, I doubt it. Certainly, if the people had realized that the creator of the universe was standing before him, they would have done anything but what they did. I mean, listen to me today. It was God in the flesh. God. God was there. And he came in this way, this this flesh, for our benefit. In part, that we might see this man and relate to him and understand him better and, and see with more clarity the profoundness of his goodness. That's one of the reasons why he came in flesh and dwelt among us. That we might behold him and see him and learn of him. And yet, they're looking at God in the flesh and they're laughing to his face. Certainly, had they known who he was, they wouldn't have done that. What about him being innocent? I don't think these Roman soldiers really cared. Today they crucified Jesus. Tomorrow they're going to crucify somebody else. And the next day somebody else. And the next day somebody else. They're just here to put in their nine to five. Get done. Get home. They don't realize they're doing the work of Satan. They're the embodiment of darkness in this hour. They're killing God. So Jesus pleads with them and says, please forgive them. It reminds me of what Stephen patterned his dying breath after. Stephen, a deacon, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, I believe it is, 7th chapter of the book of Acts, he prays at the end of this sermon as he's being stoned. And the very last recorded words that we have of that man, Stephen, is this, Lord, lay not this into their charge. Don't hold this against them. Today, friend, Jesus through his life, and even through the dying words upon the cross, have prayed for your forgiveness. What love we behold in these divine words of Jesus that you might be forgiven. This morning, if you have never been forgiven by God, You need to be. You need forgiveness. You need forgiveness for all of your sins, but you need forgiveness because it was your sins that caused our Savior to be put to death. He died for you. And listen to me today. What we're doing here is not a game. 
This is not some uniform that I put on and become the preacher and then go live my life. What we speak of this morning are divine spiritual things. There is a whole world of spiritual things that are unbeknownst to your eyes. If you're lost today, you can't see the spiritual realm. But let me tell you, it is full of so much activity. It's full of so much power and deep truth of things that must be considered. And today you've come into the house of God and you have heard about the most vital an important truth you could ever hear about, and that is Jesus died for you. And if you leave and determine to know nothing of this Jesus, to know nothing of your accountability before God, it cannot be said in an intercessory prayer of you, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Oh, yes, there's a degree to which all of us don't understand the depth of what we do. I think if we understood, you know, you've maybe heard it said before, if we could just open up hell on this floor right here and look down for just 10 seconds, if you could just see it, it would change your whole life forever. And you would not live the same that you do now. I'm convinced that many of us would want to quit all of our jobs and run to just warn the entire world. And that's just from seeing a portion of the spiritual realm. And yet God has revealed it to some degree in His Word. And as Brother Harvey has emphasized over and over, He's shed this light of truth. He's given revelation that we might understand to some degree those spiritual things And yet what has been exhorted for at least the last two nights and perhaps more is that God would show us more the depth of truth. That we might know more of the wickedness of our sin and of the righteousness of Christ and of the provision God has made through His Son. And I echo that this morning. I pray for us that don't completely realize What we are doing when we forsake the eternal truths of God. And today, if you're lost and separated from Him, I want you to know that you can march out of these doors and live your life every day according to the desires of your own heart. But you now know the truth. And if God is speaking to you, it's much more powerful than what a man can in a sermon. If you feel in your heart that there is truth piercing your soul, that is God holding you accountable for the things that you hear, that you might respond and surrender your whole self to Him. Salvation that God offers is that you trust, you turn from all of you, And you trust that what Jesus has done here is sufficient payment 
that through him, as the book of Isaiah tells us, that when, when God looked upon him, he saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. Or in other words, his soul was made an offering for sin once for all. That Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of bulls and goats as those high priests would enter into the holy place, but he offered into the true tabernacle there in heaven. He offered it, went into the true holies of holies there in heaven, and he stood before omnipotence himself, power himself. And he offered his own blood on the altar before the Father. And God the Father looked at the blood, knowing that it was perfectly righteous. And that every moment of his life he had lived perfectly. That there was no spot or blemish found upon the Lamb of God. And he saw, that, he saw the travail. He saw the blood. God was satisfied. His conditions had been met. And now he could dispense salvation to all those who come and put their trust that what Christ did was sufficient to save you now, tomorrow, and forever. Today, Jesus offers to you forgiveness. I could step down here as thousands of churches across the land likely do today. I could step down here and I could say anybody that wants to come and be saved, come down to this place and shake my hand. We could have a song of invitation. You could stand here and I could say, now repeat before the crowd. Lord, and I could give some verbiage for you to repeat and you could say all these words that are all biblically accurate. And yet it is not with the mouth that repentance and faith in in Jesus is found. Rather, it's in your heart. I can't see within your heart. And let me say this, you can't see within your heart. You don't know the depth of wickedness in your heart. You don't know those secret things tucked down in the depth of your conscience that isn't exposed to anybody, not even to yourself. And so what do we say? What does this church believe that is distinctive from so many today? It is this, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Or in other words, this, this forgiveness that you need is between you and Almighty God. That you must come, not to me, not to an altar made by human hands. Not to some book that you might repeat some verbiage. And that through that you might find forgiveness. No, what we say is that through the Spirit you must come to the foot of the cross. And behold the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. And want the atonement, the forgiveness that he brings more than anything else. That you must crucify yourself, your affections and your desires. And want him, desire him more than anything. There's a story I heard one time about a boy 
who he worked on a farm. And he was up at the top of this farm. And I think it caught on fire. And the path for him to get down from this top story was plagued with this fire. was covered with this fire. And there was nowhere for him to go. And so he came to the farm window. And it was a good 25, 30 foot drop from this window. And when his father had heard about what was going on, his father ran from the house and came out to this barn and looked up as high as these ceilings are. And as the fire raged more and more, the window of opportunity was lessening to save his life. And the boy was standing at the, at the window and he was looking down and his father was saying, Jump! Jump! And you say, well, it's easy to give yourself to Christ. It's easy to lay all of yourself into His hands. But as you would stand at the edge of that window, is it that easy? What if my dad can't catch me? And what if there's pain involved? And what if I hurt him? I've never done this before. I don't know what this is like. We've not practiced this. And yet, there's two alternatives. You lose your life to the fire. Or you lose your life trusting your father. There's no other option. And so, yes, it ought to be for all of us. You know what we ought to do in in obedience? Just jump. Because every testimony of God's word assures us he's going to catch us. And yet there's this part of human nature that clings to itself. And says, no, I can figure out a different way. There's a different way to save my life that is not so radically demanding of myself. That's not so risky. And so people conceive of all these ways to get down. And yet, there's not. There's one way to be saved. And that is to surrender. Just fall. From that 30 foot top to the Father's arms, it happens so quickly, you don't even remember what you're thinking from top to bottom. For so many of us that have been saved by God's grace, that's exactly how it is. There's this moment where we completely abandon self. Some of you were driving when that happened. Some of you were standing at a window when that happened. Some of us were on an altar when that happened. Some of us were at home in our bedrooms when that happened. My grandmother was in an outhouse when that happened. You see, it's not about religious performance It's not about any of that. It's when God sees the depth of a man's heart that we have abandoned self completely and trusted that Jesus is enough. There's no formula. We have routines here because we don't have anything else. And we say, you can come pray at this altar. 
But certainly every person in this building understands there's no power here. There's no power in your seed. I don't care how old this building is. I don't care how old this church is. If it goes back all the way to the time of Christ, there is no power here. There's power in Jesus. And it is when man comes to the end of himself and does not see religion but sees the cross and trusts Jesus and what he has done. And so here's what we say at this church. We have here and now. That's all we have. And so yes, is it not the most sensible thing in this hour to bow and to pray? Yes, it is. And two hours from now, when you get home and you're resting and you're still in that condition, it is the best for you to pray. And at three in the morning, when you're lying in your bed and you wake up and fear dawns your heart and you recognize your place before God, it is the place to pray. But we wisely say, pray now because you're not promised tomorrow. Now is the accepted time, Bible says. And so it it looks different than church today in most places because what we have occasionally happen here, not that much, not as much as we would like, is that people who have never surrendered themselves sometimes deign to come to this altar and pray. And they bow. And we gather around them. We pray. We pray that God would show them their condition and how wonderful that Christ is. And yet, in our prayers, there's this helplessness we feel. In these moments, as I end this message, there's this helplessness that I feel because I have words alone. And I pray to the Father and I intercede to a much lesser degree, but in a similar fashion that Jesus does. Father, forgive these people. Father, illuminate their minds to the utter danger that they are in. Heighten their spiritual understanding. And that's what we pray when we pray for conviction. Help them to see the spiritual realm and forget the natural realm. Help them to see the eternal and forget the temporary. And we pray. But notice what this prayer is. It's God, I am speaking to you for you to act on them. I don't get up in their face. I don't tell them all the horror stories of what can happen. I say, God, you do that work. You reveal your son. And that's what Paul said as he introduced himself in one of the letters. God who revealed his son in me. That's what we pray. And listen today, if you're affected by the message today, know this. It is not because I have some talent. It's not what it is. It's because God himself is determined to reveal his son in you. God is speaking to you. I'm just a mouthpiece and you can come back next week and you'll laugh at how ridiculous, how how terrible of a speaker that I am. Because it's not about that. It's about God speaking to you. And if he is speaking in this very hour, here's what you can know. He wants you to be saved now. You can have confidence in that. When you go home, 
and you feel, I, I liked the word that, that Brother Harvey kept using, and I've searched for it for a long time, and I, I was glad, unbidden thoughts, unprovoked thoughts. You ever out doing something somewhere, and then suddenly just a thought comes to your mind? And you think, I wasn't thinking anywhere close to that. You know, when a person doesn't know God, unbidden thoughts come to your mind. And ultimately, they have to do with your preparation to meet God. Where you stand before Him. It comes in a variety of ways. But ultimately, that's where it traces back to. Let me tell you this. When those unbidden thoughts reach your mind, talk to God. Oh, certainly, if you want to call, I have a card. I'll I'll, I'll gladly give you my card. And if you have questions, because we find the Bible full of people who had questions. Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3 and said, I don't understand. The Ethiopian eunuch came in in the book of Acts to a man and said, I don't understand. And certainly there is a place to be told and taught the questions that linger in the heart. So I wouldn't dismiss that. But ultimately, the moment where God is going to save you will deal with you and him. So, Brother Danny, if you'll get us a song, we invite you in this hour, if God is drawing you to pray, and the thoughts of your eternal destiny and the condition of your soul are deeply impressed upon your mind and heart, won't you pray in this hour? Here's what I'll tell you is this, and then I'm done. All these people... You may not know many people here today. You may know a lot of people here today. The people here at this church that are members of this church, there's a requirement before you can become a member of this church, and that is you must have a testimony of when God saved you. And so one of the blessings we've observed all this week is that people, Sister Stacy, yesterday, just last night, which is already mentioned today, she told about her experience, her testimony of when God did that work in her heart. And throughout this week, we've been blessed to hear these various testimonies of when the blood that Jesus shed was applied to the human heart. And let me tell you what they all have in common. There comes this moment, the moment when the child has fallen out of the barn, has escaped the flames, has been received safely into his father's arms, has felt the embrace And the safety of that embrace, knowing that all the torments that were just a moment ago behind me, I have now escaped and I am now no longer being faced with that imminent danger. I am secure and safe. And there's oftentimes tears that flow because you say, I never have to worry about the flames again. For some people, there's joy. For some, there's such a stilled peace because you were in such turmoil. And now God has stilled you because you've been rescued. But for all of us, there is that moment where you have been caught. And yet in this life, I know I can still remember my dad's been gone for seven years, but I can still remember the feeling of his embrace. I could still feel it if I really think about it. I can still smell the scent and the feeling. And yet what was so unique about Christ's embrace the moment he saved me is I had never felt anything like it before. It was more tender and loving. It was more all-encompassing than I had ever experienced. 
and I'll never forget it. October 6, 1998, there I was in turmoil. There I was. The pains of hell had gotten hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow, and then I called upon the name of the Lord. I beseech thee, deliver my soul. It's a quote from the Psalms. David prayed that. You see what I'm saying? He, he had that same thing I have. The same experience he had. And then in the midst of my turmoil, as these people were gathered around me, they weren't talking to me. They didn't say, you've got to come right up here because that's where you're going to get it. Of my own accord, I prayed. And I was down there for some time. And my thoughts were going everywhere. My mind was racing because, as Brother Reynolds said the other night, I don't even know how to pray. And there came a moment where I was, was calling out to God. I'm not telling you to say this. Don't, this. This is not going to save you. So don't think that it's going to save you if you say these words. I was just crying out, Lord, help me. At one moment, I was agonizing in turmoil because I was destined for hell. And in the next moment, that was gone so swiftly. It happened so fast. And I was at peace. And the thought came to my mind, what just happened? I had prayed many times for forgiveness, but had not found it. Had not been assured by God of it. But in that moment, God came. Listen to me today. I know I've been long. The Bible teaches me this. God, the God, in that moment, lived in me. It was awesome. It was awesome. And he's been there ever since. I sometimes get up in the middle of the night routinely. You know what I do when I wake up in the middle of the night? I just start talking. Do you know who to? To God. Because he's there. It's not a figment of my imagination. It's not because I want to go to heaven that I have to pray seven times a day. It's not because I want to make sure I've prayed enough righteous prayers in order to get... It's none of that. I know God. You know what? He speaks back. The Bible identifies it like this, in a still, small voice. So I'll tell you a little secret. I'm trying to be done. When I came here last night, I had no idea what I was preaching on this morning. No idea. I sat over there. Actually, I stood up there. Brother Wheeler stood up and he gave a testimony about God giving us a gift. And as he was talking, I was listening to him, kind of. Because there came a moment in his testimony where that phrase, Father, forgive them for I know not what they do. Unbidden came to my heart. And as he was talking, I was going in and out from listening to listening to this still, small voice in my heart saying, that's what you're going to preach on tomorrow. 
That's how recently he's spoken to me. I didn't see flashing lights. I didn't spend seven minutes in heaven looking at angels, taking a tour with Peter. I didn't do any of that. It was the still, small voice that brushed up against this heart of flesh and God breathed and spoke. And you know what he does when he saves us? He gives you access to his voice. Today, I said a lot this morning, I pray that whatever God has spoken to you, you would respond to the message of the gospel. Do you realize today that this moment right here may be the defining moment of your entire life? When you get to heaven, you're going to forget most of the things on earth. That's my opinion. All the things, sin, sorrow, you're going to forget it. I don't think you're going to forget the moment you went from death unto life. Now I think, this is my opinion, I think you're going to share that story. And when you get to the part when you get saved, you're going to say this. You see him? You're going to point to Christ. With a body, he's going to have a body, and he's going to have nail prints in him. That blood right there washed over me at that moment. That's why I'm here today.